as you can uh, see in your study notes today, we begin uh, today a pretty long section in Revelation uh, that describes the redemption of the saints and the bowls of wrath. That is, uh, oops, we didn't put the asterisk in the right place. Our asterisk on the, the outline of study notes is on E1. It should be on, uh, on D1 because we're beginning now 14 through 1910, the redemption of the saints and the bowls of wrath. It's the section there marked D1 or, or D prime. Um, that section goes from the beginning of 14 today all the way uh, through half of 19. It, it is a parallel thematically to what happened in chapter 7 to 9. You can see that on that outline there. Uh, if you want to look on that outline, it says 7, 1 through 9, 21. The sealing of the saints and the trumpets announcing plagues. We'll kind of highlight this a little bit later on as we're going through the text. Uh, I'd like for you to turn with me to the beginning of chapter 7 uh, before we jump into chapter 14. I want you to see where this parallel comes from a little bit. Beginning of chapter 7, here at FCC, we're interested not just in inspiring you to, to live the Christian life, but in educating how to do so by being fed each week from the Word. So we want your time here on Sunday morning to be interactive with the Word of God. So turn with us, uh, 7 verses 3 and 4, where we see the same sort of things going on in chapter 14 here in chapter 7. Look at 7, 3 and 4. It says this, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. That's the kind of dynamic we'll see again here today. And it says, I heard the number of the sealed, the 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. What we're seeing here back in Revelation 14 is, uh, is a big fancy word we call recapitulation. Recapitulation happens all over Revelation. Uh, those of you who are reading through Revelation with us during our study are aware of this phenomenon, even if you haven't really named it as such. Uh, recapitulation is just a restatement of the main theme. And as, as chapter 14 begins, it harkens back to another place in Revelation, this parallel in Revelation 7, to restate this main theme of God keeping His people through hardship and suffering so that they will be victorious. It's something we've seen time and again in Revelation. We're going to see it a little more in Revelation. It's an important theme that we pick up a lot because not only is it something that's going to be the case, it is something that is the case for those who will be conquerors. So, so restating this main theme of God, keeping His people through hardship and suffering so that they will be victorious happens all over the place, and we see it in the first verse. Pick up at verse 1. Verse 1 says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Our Bible insights today are going to be fast and furious, lots to cover, so listen quickly for the cues as we go along. Verse 1 says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Mount Zion here represents the heavenly home the heavenly city of God and His people. And if you're a note taker, you may just want to write Mount Zion equals heavenly home. Uh, if you want to look up Psalm 2.6 and Hebrews 12.22, those are helpful parts of Scripture that help us interpret what's going on here. Psalm 2.6 and Hebrews 12.22. What we're reading in Revelation 14 is actually fulfillment of those Scriptures 
like Psalm 2, there are a few other places too. Remember, Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. It's an important, uh, important lesson for us to remember. So, Revelation 14 is fulfilling the promises of God that the Lamb will stand in glory on His holy hill and will be accompanied by His army, which is what we see in the next phrase. It says, Behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. This is, of course, Christ the Lamb. Uh, and before we highlight the next phrase there, look at this about Christ the Lamb. Turn to Revelation 12, 17. 12, 17 for just a quick second. Just a page or two back. This is a contrast between Christ and the red dragon. In 12.17, that last phrase of 12.17 says, And he, that's the dragon, the dragon stood on the sand of the sea. That he there is the red dragon standing in authority over his domain of sorts. At least that's the picture of it. Now turn back to 14 and reread that whole first phrase there. The contrast is that Christ stands in authority, not just on the sands of the seashore, but on his holy hill on the, the Mount Zion, it says, I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And then it says, and with Him, which if you're a circler or a note taker, that little phrase, with Him, has a lot of meaning for those who are faithful in Christ. You don't just stand on the hill of God by yourself. You can't. You won't get there. It doesn't work that way. You stand with Him, Scripture is saying. So it says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion, not just on the shore of the sea, but on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. So for overcomers in Christ, it doesn't say people good enough or smart enough or good-looking or rich enough to stand with the Lamb, but overcomers in Christ who are with Him are future overcomers. And in keeping with Revelation 7 that we already looked at, there is a, a definite number of people known to God who are with Him. It says 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads, it says. Right away we are shown that these people are legit overcomers in Christ. These are the real deal kind of people because they stand with Christ in glory. This is again a contrast to what we talked about last week, the immediately preceding context that we saw at the end of chapter 13. Look back just a smidge at verses 16 and 17. The people who are on Mount Zion are a contrast to this in chapter 13, 16, and 17. It says, It causes all, that is uh, the beast, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So here at the beginning of 14, we see that those who have the mark of the Father's name on their foreheads are the 144,000, which is just a number that means all of God's people. It's like saying the 12 tribes of Israel, but multiplied many thousands of times over. So, so the 144,000 God's people here are standing as God's army of conquerors in the heavenly city on God's holy hill because they bear God's name. Not because they're good enough, smart enough, secure enough this side of heaven. The emphasis is that these people don't get there by themselves. 
The emphasis is that these people who stand with the Lamb are standing with the Lamb, not by themselves. Verse 2, it says, I heard a voice from heaven. I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. I think Scripture is initially uh, cueing us. It's hinting at this maybe sounding like something that John has heard, like God's voice at the beginning. But, but notice who this really is, verse 2. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne. So this voice from heaven that sounds like water and thunder and harps is actually the voice of God's army singing this new song. They are the victors, the conquerors singing this song before the four living creatures, it says, before the four living creatures and before the elders, which harkens back to Revelation 5. And here it is again. No one could learn that song except the 144,000. Not not everybody gets to sing this song. Only God's people who had been redeemed from the earth, it says at the end of uh, verse 3. Only those who had been redeemed from the earth. This is part of how we know this is not a vision about earth but a vision about final rest in heaven. It says they had been redeemed from the earth. Notice that means that these people don't stand with the Lamb unless they've been redeemed by the Lamb. Which is to say, no one stands with the Lamb if they've been redeemed by self, which isn't actually possible, but people live like it's possible all the time. I mean, if we're going to be frank about how people live this side of heaven, we put a lot of sort of energy and and faith in our our ability to like be redeemed by ourselves. It says they had been redeemed from the earth. I think there are many, I believe, who think they're standing with the Lamb, but turns out they're standing by themselves. More on that in just a minute. Verse 4 says this, It's these, that is those redeemed, who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. We have a lot of time for this, but this doesn't mean that only men get in. But it's because, and we've said this a bunch of times, but it's worth noting again, Revelation pulls from scriptural traditions and nuances all over the place, especially the Old Testament. And this is a picture of God's redeemed people standing with Christ on Mount Zion, and it's a picture of God's army. We haven't had a lot of time to put color to that, but in Jewish tradition, only men are able to fight in the army. Only men were allowed to fight the holy war. And these men were made during war to remain celibate so that they would have a single-minded focus on the war. So this is a spiritual point about keeping oneself spiritually fit and single-mindedly focused on obeying God and not an earthly point about men only getting into heaven. We're Christians, we're not Mormons. Here's the nugget here. If you want to write this down. (laughs) The redeemed have no divided interests. The redeemed who stand with the Lamb in glory have no divided interests. 
It says it is these who have not defiled themselves. It's like saying the people of God who stand with the Lamb do not commit spiritual adultery because they are sold out to their supreme commander, Jesus Christ, alone. Keep reading verse 4. It says it is these, these redeemed who keep spiritually committed, it is these who, and this is such a cool phrase, follow the Lamb wherever He goes. How cool would that be if somebody looks at your life and they say, man, she, she follows the Lamb wherever He goes. That guy follows the Lamb wherever He goes. Not like wherever He wants to go, that the Lamb's going, that He doesn't want to go. Which is how we live our lives, really. I mean, a lot of us live our lives that way. Like, wherever you go, I might eventually think about following to get close to where you're going. Because the Lamb's going to take you places you may not be comfortable with. And those who are conquerors in heaven follow Him wherever He goes. Because they're single-mindedly focused on their Master. No spiritual adultery in conquerors. No divided interests in those who stand with the Lamb in glory. Wherever He goes. Not wherever I want my life to go. Wherever I see my life taking me. Whatever I want. Aren't you just sick and tired of those kinds of earthly ways of measuring whether or not your life is worthy? I mean, what a waste. What a wasteful way to measure yourself. This is about God's goals and purposes for your life alone. Alone. To the trash heap with your own goals. It says, These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God, not for us, for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found for they are blameless. This is such a, a cool concept here that Revelation is talking about. In Revelation 14 here, it's hearkening back to a few places, but I'm just going to note one. That's Isaiah 53, if you want to take that note down. This is a famous chapter uh, that prophesies about the coming of the suffering servant. Uh, Jesus, of course, is a suffering servant. And in Isaiah 53.9 it says, They made his grave, that's Jesus' grave, They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and here it is, there was no deceit in his mouth. So those who are with Christ in glory, no lie will be found in their mouth for they're blameless. Which is is a pretty lofty kind of thing to assume about a person. So what does it mean to be blameless like that? I think it means that the redeemed of God and glory are there because they're like their master. They have followed the Lamb wherever He went. Which is to say, the redeemed of God are like their master, always speaking, literally, with their lives, communicating truth about their own testimony. They sing a song... Not of their own goodness and glory, 
but of God's all-sufficient grace to save them. They're called blameless not because they have never sinned, but because they tell the truth about the Lamb. Blamelessness comes from singing a song about Christ's worthiness and not ours. Listen, you are, you are blameless not because you have no sin. Scripture doesn't say that. Scripture justifies us as if we had no sin. It says you are blameless not because you have no sin, but because you tell the truth about the Lamb. Which is to say, if your story tries to tell the lie of your worthiness, you're not blameless. If you go around telling things about you that makes you seem like you're worthy, then that's not blamelessness. Blamelessness tells the truth about how you got to where you're going to get and why wait till there to say that? So friend, are you standing with the Lamb? Yes, this is a picture of the future. But it is a picture of the future that's meant to inform us now. Are you standing with the Lamb? Or are you pretty much going through life now as one who stands alone? Thank you very much. I think a lot of people think they're standing with the Lamb, but they're actually standing alone, pretty secure in their self-satisfying independence, relying on their ability to successfully manage their own world. But those who buy into that lie are sorely and sadly and eternally mistaken for the only truth that matters is if your blamelessness is a testimony to Christ and the Lamb's sufficiency to teach you a song, you and I wouldn't have the slightest ability to sing were it not for the redeemed blood of the Lamb. So don't miss this. Your blamelessness isn't your goodness, but it is your faithful communication of Christ's goodness. Anything else is to not be a Christian. The Gospel says your blamelessness isn't your own goodness, but it's your faithful communication of Christ's goodness. That is what makes you worthy to stand with the Lamb. So, God will indeed honor His people. God will honor His people, so start singing. That's the first blank in the outline. God will honor His people, so sing. We have this sort of idea that like, heaven, I'm going to wait for it, and then glory's going to happen, and I'm going to be like, thank you, Jesus! We're given the picture now so that blameless living by testifying to who Christ is, not to who you are, can happen now. So start singing. God will honor His people. So start singing. Secondly, God will judge mankind. This is the second section. There are three sections here. And boy, we got a boogie. God will judge mankind, so endure. That's the second blank there. God will judge mankind, so endure. Verses 16, I'm sorry, verses 6 through 13. 
Look there and follow along where three angels introduce God's judgment. This isn't the actual final judgment quite yet. That's coming to the next section. But it's the announcement of it, and it serves as a call for us. We know this from the last couple of verses. It serves as a call for us to endure. Verses 6 and 7, it says this, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead. There's another place in Revelation that says that. With an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth. Remember, earth dwellers symbolize those who are here on earth. And it means two things in Revelation. And it means those who live with those kind of earthly, beastly, evil one kinds of values and ways of living in their lives. This just simply means those who dwell on earth. (laughs) Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And then it says this, He said with a loud voice, verse 7, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. It's about to happen, he's saying. Worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. In basic terms, Scripture is telling us here that even though it doesn't seem like it, it's good news. It's good news when the final hour of God's judgment comes. Verse 8, Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Babylon is a symbol of the opposite of Mount Zion. It's a symbol of evil. And she made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Unlike the redeemed that we talk about, whose blamelessness rested in their testimony about Christ, those who follow Babylon's ways have committed in their hearts spiritually, uh, uh, spiritual adultery against God. Look at verses 9 to 11. It says, Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, if anyone is a beast follower, in other words, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath. This wrath that we're going to continue to look at here is fearful in a way that no words can really describe, which is why I think in Revelation 8, 1, there's 30 minutes of silence before this judgment. So that's sort of a parallel there in 8, 1 to what's going on here. He will drink the wine of God's wrath. This is verse 10. Poured out full strength. Bunches of places in Scripture talk about how God has limited, limited His judgment for a time until this time. Poured full strength into the cup of His anger. And He, meaning the beast follower, He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image. And whoever receives the mark of its name. Notice it says forever and ever. This isn't a one and done kind of thing. Hell is eternal and it is a conscious torment. If you want to know more, read Erasing Hell by Francis Chan. Read on verse 12. Here's the application to us in this section. It says, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This is like being blameless in the previous section. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Friends, those who follow the Lamb, those who stand with the Lamb, are those who endure. They endure hard things because they know that rest is coming. 
That's why John, that's why we are given these pictures, these images of Revelation that don't hold back either on what it's going to look like for those who follow the beast or what it's going to look like for those who do, in fact, endure. So in the middle of this call to everyone that the hour of judgment has come, it says, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who follow the Lamb are those who endure. They endure hard things because they know that rest is coming. Endurance means having the strength to last. Everybody's got the strength to last a little bit. Most of us from day to day feel like, I'm not sure I have the strength to last till dinner. But those who stand with the Lamb... Those who are with Christ will last. Those who do not have Christ will not. In the ancient Greek Olympics, it's part of the tradition we have now with our own torchbearers. There was a unique race in the ancient Greek Olympics where the runner was not the one who finished first, but the one who finished with the torch still lit. Those whose flame for Christ remains lit will last. Which means in the midst of God's terrible final wrath against sin, there is even then an encouraging word to believers to stay strong. To stay strong. Those who blamelessly talk about a testimony of the Lamb, are equipped to stay strong. Because they know that lasting has nothing to do with something I manufacture by my own human stick to You all know we're raised from the womb to develop as much as possible our earthly security and foundations to in our human form to endure. That will be crushed. Those who have faith in that will find themselves crushed. So for believers, there is an encouraging word to stay strong and to last through hard things because endurance will find rest. Though your terminal illness or your debilitating disease finds no cure, the believer will find rest. Though your finances or your future seem in constant shambles, those who stand with the Lamb will find rest. Though you can't seem to find a job or your job never ends or your loneliness overwhelms you or your addictions don't seem to let up, verse 12 those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Christ will be blessed with eternal rest. Your godly character isn't formed by doing what's easy. Godly character is not going to be formed by finding ways to avoid hard things as if that's possible. Holiness is formed through the rough winds of time and by the hardships that we endure. Charles Spurgeon famously said, it's a great quote, 
I have learned to kiss the wave that strikes me against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the wave that strikes me against the rock of ages. Believers will endure. Lastly, God is going to harvest the earth. God will harvest the earth. So plant. So plant. It's a bit of a a different sounding direction than you might have thought. We'll see where that comes from here. Look at 14 through 20. We learn about what the harvest, the final judgment looks like. And it's not a pretty picture. Verse 14 says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head. This is a vision of the risen Christ, like what we saw in Revelation 1, 9-20. Not exactly the same in, in lots of ways, but it's like that vision. I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man. And seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand is that next phrase at the end of verse 14 there. This is a picture of holiness and authority. And a sickle, of course, is one of those sort of half-moon-shaped knives that's used to cut plants at the root. It says he has a sharp sickle, not a dull one, but one that is sharpened and ready for reaping. Verse 15 says another angel, this is the fourth angel we see here, Another angel came out of the temple where God lives. This angel brings news from God. says, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. In other words, it's time to divide. And what's being divided here are wheat and tares. The real thing and the fakes. Followers of Christ, followers of the evil one. The wheat that feeds people and the weeds that is thrown on the trash heap. In the parable of the tares in Matthew 24, 24 verse 30 says, Let both, meaning wheat and weeds, wheat and tares, Let both grow together until the harvest. Well, in this passage here, it's harvest time. And notice, notice who does the harvesting. Only God can do this harvesting. Doesn't mean I'm against Christian discipline. Doesn't mean I'm against protecting the flock against false prophets. Don't mishear me. Only God does this harvest, though. We are not called, and this is big for some of us, some of you who think that your role is to go through life with a sickle. We are not called to harvest, but to plant, to water, and to endure. Only Christ and His angel hold this sickle. This is a reminder that we are put here not to be judge and jury, but to be fruitful and multiply. That's the first command. Don't let go of the first. Be fruitful and multiply. Don't mistake what I've just said for namby-pamby earthly tolerance. I'm not saying that. I am saying that until Christ comes, our job is to be fruitful and to multiply. Not to bring a sickle where we are not equipped to carry it. 
Which means, learn to testify to the Lamb and not you. Please, all of us. It means we need to stop acting at times like a self-righteous judge and jury for everyone else. Plant. Planting is the calling. Plant by being a blameless proclaimer of the truth about Christ. And leave the self-righteous hypocrisy to the tares and to the Pharisees. Carrying around a sickle in your life ain't going to get people to love Jesus. Planting the Word of God in them is the call. And we know that He's going to come and harvest, which means it's time to plant. It's time to work on being fruitful and multiplying. And stop walking through life as if we are called to carry the sickle we are ill-equipped to handle. Verse 16. Remember, this is Christ here. It says, He who sat in the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. There are two things going on here. A division of two parts. This first harvest is Christ gathering the grain, the good stuff, with his sickle. But here comes the second one that is meant to harvest the bad stuff. Verse 17, it says, Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. These are the grapes of wrath. This is God trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Verses 19 and 20. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, was stepped on, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia, which is a figurative stomping out of evil as foretold in Joel 3.13. It's a picture of how God's going to stomp out evil. It comes from Joel 3.13 where it says, Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in and tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. 1,600 stadia is about 200 miles. That's a lot of blood. And it's a picture of a God whose judgment against sin is real and is fierce beyond measure. Friend, God takes His own holiness very seriously. He takes His holiness seriously in a way that we can't really get. He cannot abide with sin. He cannot live with sin. And He will not allow evil to reign. Let's pray.